Just get, are you just getting foot rubs all weekend long online? Is that what you're getting? Your little foot massages online? <laughs> you know, Elliot, one of the things we always talk about here on this podcast is not just looking after ourselves, but looking after everybody around us. Uh, and that's not just family, that's neighbors, that's colleagues, that's everybody. But watching headlines on Saturday and hearing your report on Rod Brindamore, it feels like the coach of the Carolina Hurricanes is taking that to another level here. For those that didn't watch headlines on Saturday, you want to spell this one out for us? So I spent a lot of last week trying to figure out what was going on with Rod Brindamore because nobody believes he's going to, he wants to leave Carolina. I know there's this rumor about could he be the first head coach of the Seattle Kraken? Is he interested in going anywhere else? But nobody believes he really wants to leave. And depending on who you talk to, there's a belief also that he may be very close to a deal and may even have a verbal deal. I don't know. It it depends on who you talk to, right? Mm -hmm. A month or two ago, the several of us reported, I think, Frank Saravelli had a report about it. Uh, Sarah Sivian had a report about it. I think Dan Rosen from NHL.com had a report about it. I'd heard it that Brindamore was getting close to having a deal done. And for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. And now there are people saying that they're wondering if it's going to happen. Hmm. And I do think that there are teams out there looking at this and saying, if we have the opportunity, we'll back up the Brinks truck for Brindamore and give him more money than in Carolina because the belief is if he stays there, he's going to take less than he can get on the market because he wants to be there. But the issue is his staff, and I'm not just talking about his coaching staff, the assistant coaches, the goaltending coach, but also the training and the equipment staff, they don't have contracts for next year. And apparently what Brindamore has said is, I want these people taken care of. And I won't sign until I know that they're taken care of. And, you know, I don't know where this is going to go. I think there is a chance he still stays, obviously. Like I said, I believe he wants to stay. But I, I think right now he's taking a stand uh, for the rest of his staff because he feels that they should be taken care of too. And if you know anything about Brindamore, I don't think this would come as a huge surprise. No, he's always been that guy. My, my question when I saw your report on Saturday was what happens within the organization when the negotiation between uh, Rod Brindamore and the squad reaches that point? Uh, it's one thing to get the coach done. It's one thing to get his immediate assistance done. And isn't it a whole other thing to take care of? Eric? First of all, good on Rod Brindamore. Like I want to make that up front, like first and foremost here, good on Brindamore because in this time, and I know like we all know, as you point out, Rod Brindamore has options. Like Rod Brindamore hits the market. He's as unemployed for as long as he wants to be. I get that. I will tell you, I got a text uh, today from someone who said, I really hope that the Hurricanes saw that go public and they sign everyone because I think there's some coaches nervous about what that could mean for them. Sure, because all of a sudden there's a shark in the water. Like all of a sudden Rod Brindamore becomes available, teams that already have coaches and might be on the fence whether they like him or not. All of a sudden that could sway. So I, I, I understand all that. I, I do wonder though, if you're the general manager, if you're Don Waddell, mm -hmm. how do you receive that information? If you're Tom Dundon, how do you receive that information? 
Well, I think they already knew. I don't believe that Don Waddell and, and or and or Tom Dundon would be surprised that that is the case. I think it's well known inside the organization that that's the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, what they probably don't like is that it's public. We'll see where that goes. We'll see if that changes anything. I don't know that it will, but I'm sure that that's something that they would rather have been internal. Like For example, I sent a note to the Hurricanes saying that this is what I was hearing because I legitimately did make a whole bunch of calls last week wondering, you know, why isn't this done? Like, what's going on here? And finally, you know, someone helped me unearth the answer. The thing that, you know, is interesting to me about all of this is the Carolina Hurricanes are doing a lot of things right. They're in first place in the NHL. They've done a really good job finding and developing players. They've taken some gambles on some players that have really worked out well. And Brindamore is at the heart of that. He sets the tone for the day-in, day-out team operations of the players. And clearly those guys like playing for him. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is, and they know him better than anybody else, why would you fool around with that? Why would you screw around with that? If you're the Carolina Hurricanes, why would you screw around with that? Yeah. Why tempt the fate? Listen, right now for the Carolina Hurricanes, things are going great. They are the top team in uh, a division that has the Tampa Bay Lightning and a resurgent Florida Panthers in it. They are the talk, and now they have been for a couple of seasons now, of the NHL, although they play in a very quiet market. Let's just say, I mean, this isn't New York, Philadelphia, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, etc. Like right now, everything is coming up Carolina. Like if the Carolina Hurricanes win the Stanley Cup this year, are you surprised? No. Who would be surprised? No, no one would. They're really good. In a situation like this, and I think there's a few reasons for this. I think very quiet, and we've talked about it before. I think listen, as, as much as you have to give credit to Don Waddell for what he's been able to do, They've got some secret weapons in that organization, and namely Eric Tulski is one of them. I think that Eric Tulski is one of the smarter people around the NHL and has been for a long time. A lot of those moves go right through Tulski, and a lot of the communication to the coaches uh, go through Eric Tulski. So they've got like some secret weapons that don't get talked about a lot in the NHL uh, on their staff. But I'm with you. Like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Not only is it not broke, it's going great right now. They have a chance to be good for a long time. For a long time, absolutely. And they have a whole they have a dynamic roster, a lot of players that do a lot of different things. So give us some context here. Mm-hmm. As far as a salary for Rod Brendamore, like I don't know whether Dundon would be scared away from a number. Like, are we talking about the Joel Quenville, Aline Vigneault, Claude Julien Club? If he stays in Carolina, he's going to be way under market. Okay. And, you know, Dundon is a guy who's made it very clear. He's a smart guy. I disagree with him on some things, but I agree with him on others. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he has made it very clear is that he thinks executive and coaches' salaries in the NHL are way too high. And he wants to change that. And the thing is, if Brenda Moore comes in where I've heard he could potentially be coming in, it's a steal. It's still a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's going to be holding any tag days for Rod Brindamore, but it's a steal. 
So if you're saving that much money under market for Brindamore, why are you drawing such a hard line mm-hmm. on all the people he wants around with him? Somebody out there can explain it to me. I'm just looking at it from my point of view. And you know, Brindamore is clearly going with the don't bleep with happy rule, right? Yeah. And I respect that, especially now. I think there's a whole world of people who are going through that right now. Sure. If Brindamore is going on the don't bleep with happy rule and taking below his market to stay, why are you drawing a hard line with the people around him? Why tempt fate right. that he gets upset and says, forget it? Okay, so the best type of leverage you can have in any negotiation, you know this as well as I do and anyone else listening to this podcast, the best leverage you can have in a negotiation is if you have the ability to walk away. Mm-hmm. And Rod Brindamore does because he has options. So let's say it doesn't get that far. Let's say that Rod Brindamore gets uh, gets redone here by the Carolina Hurricanes, he gets re-upped, and gets everybody around him done at the same time as well. What happens to his stroke in the organization? That feels like a real power move, doesn't it? I think Brittemore's always kind of been like that. I remember in 2006, we went to Carolina. I was working at Hockey Night in Canada at the time at CBC, and I was doing uh, the headliner was still at the time. I can't remember if we're still calling it the headliner or we'd switched it to inside hockey. I don't mm-hmm. remember which name the piece was. And Carolina had a great year that year. You know, of course, they won the Stanley Cup. And we went down there to do a piece on Brindamore. And he was finally getting the respect that he deserved, right? And I do remember asking him like about, you know, the way his play was getting recognized. And he looked right at me and he said, I've never changed a thing you know, the, the fact is a lot of you are just noticing. Hmm. And it wasn't exactly that, but it, I'm paraphrasing it. I remember it. I remember him looking at me and saying that. Hmm. And that's who he is. Like, you know, if you ask him a question, you're getting an honest answer. He's going to tell you what he thinks. And he's telling the Carolina Hurricanes what he thinks. Take care of my staff. One final thing on the Carolina Hurricanes. We'll get to the uh, the rest of the podcast here in a second. How much influence do you think Justin Williams has on this team? Uh, uh, quite a bit. I think they listen to his opinion quite a bit. The only reason I ask that is Williams played for Rod Brindamore. Mm-hmm. If there's one person that could exert some influence based on having played for this coach, would it not be Justin Williams? Maybe it's possible. I think he's definitely influenced uh, Dundon with some ideas before. You know, Dundon is a really interesting guy. He's successful, obviously. He's opinionated, obviously. He's driven, obviously. You know, one thing I, I learned is that for a lot of people who don't, you know, play sports for a living, but they're around sports, what's their game? Their game is winning the negotiation. Right, Jeff? Yes, that is their competition. How many people have you met in this business that the negotiation or the argument is their game? Oh, 
<laughs> How long do you have? I know, so it's everybody, right? <laughs> everybody. Listen, it's, it's it's at every single level, Elliot. A hundred percent. So this is this is Tom Dundon's game. It's winning the negotiation. He's like a lot of very successful people I know. Why are they successful? Because they're determined to win every inch of the negotiation, right? Mm. Well, like I said, I think right here, Tom Dundon has his win. He can get Rod Brindamore, one of the best coaches in the National Hockey League, signed for well under the market value. He's won that negotiation. Why isn't it signed? Because I believe Rod Brindamore has said, okay, you've got me done. Now take care of all these other people. Hmm. If you're... Tom Dundon, what are you winning by blowing this? Like, let's just say the absolute worst case scenario happens and Brendan Moore says, I won't tolerate this. I'm done at the end of this year. I'm either retiring to golf in Carolina or I'm going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. What have you won here if you're the Hurricanes? You haven't. You have a new coach that comes in at a price that the owner wants. Yeah, because I think he's already won. You know what, though? Good on Rod Brindamore here. Stick up for your principles. Not everybody can afford to. Stick up for your principles. Stick up for your people. Leverage the position that you have to help others around you. And on that, we'll uh, kick off the podcast. Welcome to 31 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Sierra AT4. Okay, welcome once again to 31 Thoughts, the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, for listening. Thank you for the downloads and thank you for the kind words uh, about episode number 200. Uh, welcome to episode 201. Uh, Elliot, now there are officially, after the final payment was made late last week, 32 teams in the NHL. Welcome the Seattle Kraken. I have one big question about Seattle. I'm going to hold off here for a couple of seconds. Uh, but as we greeted this news late last week, what went through your mind right away? You know what the first thing I thought of is? What's that? Who's going to be the first Kraken? Who's going to be the Reed Duke? Yes. because And that is the first thing I thought about. Who's going to be the, <laughs> the Reed Duke of the Kraken? The first player they sign? Yes. The ultimate trivia question? It was Reed Duke or the, uh, the Brandon Wheat Kings? Uh, signed by the Vegas Golden Knights. Who's going to be that guy for Seattle? So Vegas, uh, the Kelly McCrimmon Association, went to his junior team, Brandon, to grab the first one. What happens with Seattle? Do they go to the Thunderbirds and sign a player? <laughs> Everett Silvertips? <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. That's a really good idea, Jeff. I give you credit. Who's uh, that? That is a great... I don't know if there's an undrafted free agent from Seattle or Everett that they could sign. Yeah, I like the way you think. That's a guaranteed. I'm just watching uh, a highlight right now. Yeah. One of my favorite baseball players, Andrew McCutcheon, just hit a 444-foot home run for the Phillies. Mm -hmm. That is a 444-foot home run for the Kraken if they sign one of the silver tips or 
one of the Thunderbirds. That's a, that's a 470 George Springer, baby. I'll go 470 all day long. That bomb that he well, hit. So you really need the ago. extra 26 feet, eh? <laughs> yeah. you, you really need yeah. that? Yeah, I'm, I'm that petty, Elliot. I am, I, am that, I am that petty. So that's one thing I thought about. Um, you know, I, I thought about the expansion draft. Mm-hmm. I love the Vegas expansion draft. It was such a fun event. I don't think there's going to be much of a chance this year I'm going to be able to get to go to Seattle. Uh, but I'd love to be there. I'd love to go to the Seattle expansion draft. I loved it. It sounds like it's going to be in multiple locations, right? With various celebrities locally, and locally, like, yes. It, it it sounds like listen, no surprise. Yeah, like I think the one thing we've, we've we're all expecting out of Seattle is there's going to be a real element of showmanship about this. Like there's going to be no no such thing as a low key presentation for anything, especially not something as substantial as the expansion draft. But the the one thing that I that I wonder about, and I have for a long time here, and again, all of this is going to be sort of lurking, you know, out from under the shadows of what happened with the Vegas Golden Knights and what they were able to do with their expansion draft and the team they put together and what they did in that first season. Talk about raising an impossibly high bar uh, for the Seattle Kraken here. To me, the question is this: If you're Ron Francis. Do you want a good team for 21-22 or do you want a good team for 25-26? I think this question is now irrelevant. Why is that? Because I think he's going to be able to do lots of different things here. You think he'll be able to do both? Yes. You know, the pandemic has changed everything for a lot of us. It's particularly changed things for Seattle. There were a lot of GMs in this league and organizations in this league who talked tough about how we're not going to make the same mistakes with Seattle that we did with Vegas. Oh, they well, will. look what's happened. Oh, they all, they all want to make deals. Well, before, I, I think it was legitimate. At one point in time, I thought it was legitimate that Seattle was going to get squeezed here a little bit more, that you know the, the, they had opportunities to avoid the mistakes. Now, because the cap is flat, we're in a different spot. There's going to be the opportunity to do some things. You know, one of the things I'm very curious about if, if Seattle's going to do is they have to draft a minimum salary, right? Yes. So will they target the minimum and that leaves them a ton of cap room to do whatever they want with, whether it's free agents or extort trades or whatever they want to do? See, I, I wonder about them playing with that cap space and saying, here's a chance for us to pick up picks and prospects and help a lot of teams out of some really uncomfortable situations. That's why I asked the question, like, do do you want to be good in 22 or do you want to be good in in 26? That's why I think this gives you the opportunity to do both. They're going to get players and they have the opportunity, take some really bad contracts here for a couple of years and essentially buy first rounders and buy prospects for getting teams out of pickles getting them out of salary cap jams or getting the owners out under the weight of bad deals mm-hmm. that they now, that they now regret by the way, the draft is structured this year. Um, but by the way, all expansion drafts are done and all every other expansion draft will be done this way uh, at the same time too. When you're paying as much money as uh, Vegas and Seattle did, like you're going to get players, right? Like that is going to happen. Like, I don't think that anyone's going to, or should expect Seattle to replicate what Vegas did because that was just a just a freak. But they'll be a competitive team. My only question is, how much does, does Ron Francis want to say, you know what, it would be nice to be competitive this season, but if we can pick something up that's going to help us down the road, like we're in, 
we're in this for the long play, not just the, not just a short pop. I think the pandemic and what it's done to NHL economics, they're going to be able to do both. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to do both. So you think there's going to be a lot of side deals here? Yes. So you think there's going to be a lot of bribes, essentially, Elliot, is what you're saying? <laughs> there will be a lot of bribery. Just like a Chicago election, there will be a lot of bribery. <laughs> like, you know, like one of the teams I'm wondering is Philly. Yes. Well, you wonder if players like James Van Riemsdyk or Jacob Voracek, yeah. if there are deals there not unlike what we saw with Pittsburgh and Vegas with Marc-Andre Fleury I think Philly's going to be one of the biggest teams to watch this offseason all they've been doing since before the trade deadline I think is is sitting there and saying what are we going to do here Mm -hmm. I think Philly's going to be a fascinating watch let's get to Philly Uh, because that's one of the teams that I wanted to discuss sort of under the umbrella of teams, you're surprised that, you know, here we are six or seven games, five or six games remaining in the season. And these teams are out. I want to talk about the races here in a couple of moments, because really there aren't any outside of Dallas and Nashville. There's races for positioning, uh, but not so much to get in. But as far as teams that are on the outside of all of this, and maybe Dallas is going to end up being that answer from Stanley cup finalists out of the playoffs. But top of the charts for me has got to be the Philadelphia Flyers. And I know we spent a lot of time on them a few episodes ago, but pick up on the conversation we just had or the point you were just trying to make there about what Philly is poised to do here. First of all, let me say on Dallas, I don't know if anyone's ever exempt from criticism, but they'd be as close as anyone I could get to. Because of COVID and injuries. And they had the situation in Texas where the power grid went down and they couldn't play for a week because of that too. Some of them were housing uh, co-workers and teammates because there was flooding in their places. I used to have a house that had some trouble with flooding. It's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Like to me, the stars, I know it'll be disappointing if they don't make the playoffs. I know the overtime win by Nashville heavily tilted oh, the odds. Stretching out at the blue line. Here is Eckholm down the left wing. Eckholm goes behind the net. Take a wrap around and it's tipped in the net. Eric Holla is there. And the Predators win it overtime. What a drive from Eckholm. He gets behind the net, puts it out in front, and Holla. Boom. Good finish. Just pumps it in. That was a tense game. So, I mean, obviously I'm watching Toronto, Vancouver, and I'm watching Montreal, Ottawa, but I had that Nashville-Dallas game on, and it was tense. Yeah. 0-0 in overtime, you probably want a little bit more to happen, but it was a tense game. And the odds are now really tilted in Nashville's favor between the schedule and, and that win. But, you know, to me, like I said, as close as you can get to be exempt from criticism this year, the Dallas Stars are on that list for me. That's fair. And they haven't had Sagan for the entire season and, 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 and. Bishop. Bishop's another one. Um, do we not under-recognize the importance of Matt Niskanen on this team? Because that blue line looks and looked completely different this season without Matt Niskanen. Defensively, the Philadelphia, like the one area where you look at and you say, well, what was the problem with Philly this year? Defensively, they had a real hard time. Like they were bad. They're just flat out bad. 
Yeah, you know, Hart had a rough year. He won't play. The defense was terrible in front of him. I think Chuck Fletcher has some real, like I said, I think he's going to be really interesting to watch in the offseason. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I think it's going to be fascinating what they decide to do. Like this year, if you're losing, has been total hell. And like these guys, they can't do anything. And like we joked last week about how guys are texting me and saying we're just sick of each other and we hate each other. Yeah, I think Philly is one of those teams that's going through that. So I think top to bottom, the way they play, their roster, their coaching staff, like everything is on the table. Everything. After a year like this, nobody avoids the microscope. And I think they've been planning it for some time. Like, it's not like they're going to play their last game whenever it is next week and they're going to say, okay, let's sit down. I think the Flyers have been doing it for some time now. Like, I'll tell you this, like, there was a rumor going, there was this crazy rumor going around last week that they were supposed to have a day off one day. The day off was canceled and switched for another day. And then the players, like, were like, no, we were given this day off we'll just keep the schedule the way it is. It was so weird. It's just a crazy situation where I just think the level of frustration among everybody in that organization mm-hmm. is just off the charts. So the first order of business then is to get yourself right for the, uh, the expansion draft and yeah. all the, the deals that are going to come along with it. But after that is done, of course, eyes on the NHL draft in late July, but is not the main job this season for the Philadelphia Flyers to get Carter Hart healthy and performing again. Because without that guy, you know, are you, you know, just winding your, you know, winding your watch on the way to the electric chair? I think teams have to be really careful about this year. This is such an unusual year. You know, Philly had a COVID outbreak. Right after that, they had to go right across the country and they lost to Boston in that outdoor game. They got killed by the Bruins, and their season just nosedived from there, right? Yeah. To me, because Carter Hart's had a really rough year, and he has had a rough year, it doesn't mean that you're sitting there and saying, okay, this guy is no good now. I agree with you. I think you analyze it, and you analyze it pretty strenuously, but I would bet on him recovering, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yes. Based on his history, based on his track record, based on what we've seen professionally from him, I would say absolutely. But that still has to be job number one. Yeah. Like, he's a guy that needs to get the TLC in the offseason, right? Like, he needs to get the full attention. Because that's it. Without Carter Hart, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you do to, you know, find a partner for Ivan Provorov. It doesn't matter what you're doing for the expansion draft. It doesn't matter who you're bra- It doesn't matter if you don't have that goalie. Everything's, I mean, it's the story of Philadelphia. Everything gets undone because of the goaltending. Now, not that I'm pinning everything on Carter Hart because the defense had a really tough go of it this year too. Well, I think you mentioned that, you know, the, the Niskanen thing, and that's something they're going to target. They are absolutely going to target how do we fix that. Okay, so you mentioned that Nashville-Dallas game on Saturday, and you're right, that was tense. That was edge of your seat, and you only had the, the payoff uh, in overtime. But... If you look at the races around the league, yeah, you know, I think going into this season when we said, okay, look at the schedule and it's only interdivision, so this is going to go right down to the wire. It's going to come down to those last handful of games. 
I mean, Nashville, Dallas is the only playoff spot that's up for grabs here. That's that, that we're having any conversation about, you know, like many is two points back of Colorado for second in the West, uh, Tampa and Florida are two points back of Carolina for first in the central mm-hmm. the East is a log jam. You know, I have Pittsburgh and Washington and the Islanders all within four points. And you have Boston two points within the Islanders. By the way, by the way, you guys cannot allow a Hey Berkey this year of how Brian Burke saved the penguins. That will not happen. Brian doesn't want it to happen. Brian goes out of his way to mention he's like if if anyone oh, from yeah, if sure. anyone if anyone from my team said uh that Brian Burke and Ron Hextall are taking credit for this, they'd be livid. He wants you to say it. Hey Berkey, tell us about how you and Ron Hextall saved the Penguins this year. <laughs> um, they've only got four games left. They're tops of the division right now, and that episode is not going to come out. I assure you. Hey Berkey, how tell us how you came into Pittsburgh with a big red S on your chest this year? <laughs> how you went into that phone booth and tore off your white shirt, and there was a big S on your uh, on your dry fit underneath. That red tie you always wear turned into a cape. <laughs> um, so there really aren't any races here other than just jockeying for a position and for my money well you you forgot the interesting one in the north and that is all of a sudden montreal is montreal, two back winnipeg. Of winnipeg yes well all of a sudden the winnipeg jets have lost six games in a row yeah boom and we've seen benchings we've seen irate players whether it's you know mark shifley whether it's connor hellebuck I don't have a problem with any of that. I don't have a problem with any of it either. I'm fine. Listen, I I expect star players to be upset when they're sat down or taken out of play. I'm totally fine with it. But all of a sudden, any Maple Leaf fan or Montreal Canadian fan that was, you know, getting excited about this opening round matchup, oh, finally going to see the Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. Well, guess again, it might be Leafs Winnipeg in the opening round and Edmonton Montreal as well. There were two big goal celebrations on Saturday night. You know, Caulfield scoring. Kachuk has been on the ice since the start of this overtime. He has not been able to get off. Two to Caulfield scores! Paul Caulfield, his first NHL goal is a game winner in overtime. And Halla scoring for the Predators. Those were, the way those two teams celebrated, you would have thought they would have won the cup. Or pretty close to it. I, I mean, I'm exaggerating when I say the cup, but you would have thought maybe they would have won a playoff round. Just the stress and relief of those two victories. Even though Winnipeg's really struggling, I still wonder if Montreal has enough to pass them. Although the Canadians, they had an unbelievable weekend. Like just everything they were going through, they had an incredible weekend. To fall behind Winnipeg like they did and win, to fall behind Ottawa like they did and win, and Ottawa's been a lot better. I don't know if I would have believed that for a lot of chunks in the past couple weeks they had that in them. And I still think with all the injuries they have, it's going to be a challenge, but I'm astonished at how Winnipeg has has opened up the door there. Let me nitpick again. Okay. Let me get on my soapbox again. First of all, congratulations to Cole Caulfield. Great goal, great celebration, getting there. How many times can you watch slow neutral zone regroups? The overtimes are getting... They're getting awful, Elliot. I'll just be blunt. They're getting terrible. Yeah. 
Like all it is, nobody wants to change possession. Everyone wants to catch everyone on a line change or catch them on a and it worked um, on a switch, and and it worked. It just took a while to get there. Oh, don't have it. Oh, neutral zone regroup. Here we go back, and it's slow. Like when three on three started, it was it was the fast worst thing paced, was down, there, Jeff, down, is that it worked. I know, and then then Caulfield because scored. now more people are going to do I it. I know. I'm like watching this. I'm like, oh my god, this is so awful. And then whoa, I'm like jumping out of my chair. Okay, well that was great, and it worked. But just I don't know, man. That's <laughs> that doesn't seem like the spirit of three on three overtime to me. Like I remember that first season there, the first season of three on three. There was one Detroit Ottawa overtime, which was just five glorious minutes of odd man rushes and scoring chances and up and down and edge. Was that the one where Nyquist held the puck for a minute? No, no, no. This was I can't remember exactly. I, I actually I would like to go back and find. It was in the first season of three on three, and it was late in the season, and it was to me the best three on three I've ever seen. Detroit and Ottawa. It was spectacular. And then to watch on Saturday. And again, great finish. Cole Caulfield, awesome. That was fantastic. But man, slow neutral zone regroups over and over again. And then Ottawa grabs a puck and does the same thing. <laughs> like, oh man. I don't know if this is what the NHL was uh, was shooting for. Can I tell you one thing in Winnipeg I am really curious about? What's that? So at the trade deadline, we've talked about this, that Winnipeg tried to get another defenseman in addition to what they did with Ben. Yeah. And Sheveldayoff was very, very upset about it. That he, he could tell he was noticeably upset that he couldn't get another D. Well, he wanted Jamie Alexiak. Yes, we've talked about that, that he was the guy. Well, around the same time, he said that he wanted to see Vili Hainola. How many times has he played since that game? I don't know. How many times has he played? Once. Oof. See, I think one of the more interesting things about way hockey is still different from a lot of other sports, never mind a lot of other sports, I would say baseball in particular. In baseball, the manager in a lot of places, the power has been taken out of their hands. The organization sets the roster and comes up with a lot of the in-game strategy, okay? Now, it's a much slower game than hockey is, so I think there's, you know, in hockey, you can't make those decisions that slowly. You need a coach who's on the ball and saying, okay, I'm ready to do this. You don't have the time frame you do in baseball, but I think there's a lot of coaches in hockey who still, and a lot of teams who look at it like, we set the roster of the overall team, but the coach decides who plays and who gives out the ice time. Now, I think some teams mold it a bit better than others, but I still think there's a church and state separation in most cases. This one with Heinol is interesting to me because he's played once, uh, since Sheveldayoff said that, mm-hmm. I do believe that Winnipeg is one of those teams that's like, we may put up the overall roster, decide who's on there from 1 to 23 or whatever, but Paul Maurice picks the lineup. Like, I just think that they would like to see this guy. And 
they're going to make the playoffs. Calgary's 10 points back of them with six games to go. But I, I wonder if internally the Jets are just like, we have to see if this guy can play now. We have to see it. Speaking of players you want to see, I want to talk about Quentin Byfield. So Quentin Byfield made his uh, debut last week in the NHL. Yeah. So great story. Second overall draft pick. Like, honestly, Elliot, I remember watching him play York Simcoe Express in the OMHA before he joined the Sudbury Wolves at the OHL. And he, well, I mean, physically, he's just bigger than everybody. But the skill set, the skating, like all of it, like he looked like, the first thing I thought of was he looked like a combination, you're going to laugh when you say this, a combination of Joe Thornton when he played with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds and Yevgeny Malkin. Like that's what he looked like. It was freakish. And the, the obvious is so I would look at him and go, oh, that's a new Eric Lindros. That's a new Eric Lindros. But anyway, so second overall pick. And I look back, first of all, great story and congratulations to the player. Mm-hmm. I look back at the conversation that we had, I think it was on the last podcast. I know they kind of all run together here. Well, one of our podcasts, but we talked about the NHL, CHL deal and how a player like Byfield this season, if the OHL were playing, the decision would have been he's either on the NHL roster or he's on the OHL roster. And I could see a situation where you know, Byfield, the Kings would have kept him around at a camp, played up until the magic number where all of a sudden, you know, you're burning the first year of the contract and they make a decision and maybe send him back to the OHL. Who knows? Maybe it goes back there. But this year being a year where the OHL wasn't playing, he stays in the American Hockey League. And it seems as if that was the best scenario for him. Like that worked him having that transition between the OHL and let's face it, he goes back to the Sudbury Wolves of the OHL. He has nothing to prove. He's like, there's not a whole lot of growth that's going to happen for a player like Quentin Byfield going back to dominate junior one more season uh, versus playing however many games he played with the, uh, with the Ontario reign of the American hockey league that worked for him. Now we talked about this, on a previous podcast about how this deal is going to get looked at in a different way. And another player that comes to mind, and this might be an even better example, an even better example of how teams are looking at this arrangement between the NHL and the CHL and saying, we need to rethink this and how they're going to do it. Maybe they don't even know how they're going to do it, but it needs to get discussed again. And it probably will. And this example is Jamie Drysdale. Jamie Drysdale was probably a player who out of training camp would have probably right away been sent back to Erie Mm -hmm. and wouldn't had a chance uh, to play in the American Hockey League. You know, it would have been just like, okay, kid's not ready, send him back. But not only was he allowed to stay in the American League because the OHL wasn't playing, but all of a sudden he started developing in leaps and bounds. He's in the NHL now. He's not going back. And Elliot, he's one of Anaheim's best defensemen. And that doesn't happen if the OHL isn't in action this year. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a, there's a few players that are like this, but the one big one that, that pops where you look at, okay, which player would have been sent back right away at a training camp and not even been given the obligatory nine games? To me, it's probably Jamie Drysdale. Like, I think you're bang on about this, that this agreement is going to get looked at again. I don't know how they do it. 
one player every two years can, you know, come in right from the, right from the draft and not have to go back to junior high. I don't know. All I know is there's enough examples now. And this year has shown like this year has proven because of the OHL being dark. This year has proven that these players can handle it. And there's a lot of them. What do you think? I don't disagree with anything you just said there. I think the thing that saves it is that when push really came to shove, I think it was last year, and they could have voted on this, there were a lot of teams that said this is still our number one feeder league and we can't ruin it. Mm -hmm. So does it become, say, like the Max Domi question? If you're entering into your fourth year of junior, can you go play AHL? Mm -hmm. Is there a compromise that can be reached? Or a team can only do it three years out of five. That's another idea. Or once every two years or however you want to do it. Is there that compromise there? Now, the junior hockey operators will look at that and say, hold on a second here. If you want, you know, the CHL and for the purposes of this conversation, specifically the OHL to be this, you know, developmental hothouse here, you need to keep as many high-end athletes in the league as possible. Because there were players uh, like Quentin Byfield in the league when Quentin Byfield joined the league. So this would be an example of, you know, climbing up to the top of the roof and then kicking down the ladder and saying, I'm here, screw everybody else. Now, I fall more on the side of if the player can play in the American Hockey League, he probably should go. But I know junior hockey operators would look at it and say, hold on a second here. If you want this as a top developmental league, you better keep some elite level players here. But the winds are very much moving towards this thing changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's going to happen, I would imagine. In some way. Something happens here. Do you have a thought on Quentin Byfield? I mean, we started, started this whole diatribe by bringing up Quentin Byfield and transitioning to Jamie Drysdale. But do you have a thought on Byfield? I, I'm just really happy for him. You know, getting the opportunity, it will whet the appetite. I wish he would have scored. He had a glorious chance in that first game. But he got the opportunity, and I think in the long run, it's only going to make him better. I'm really interested in this Kings team because they got a lot of young players. And I wonder how much, A, they are friendly with each other and how much they look around and say, how many of us are going to make it? Because you can be friendly, but you also have to compete like hell. You're competing for the spots. Do you say the same thing about the Anaheim Ducks? Because that's another team that's loaded with young players. You know, I said earlier that Philly is one of the teams I'm really wondering about. Anaheim is another. Mm -hmm. The fact that Bob Murray sets such a high bar for some of his best players makes me wonder if he's looking to try to hit some kind of home run this offseason and not commit to a full rebuild but try to get right back into it because all three california teams are out like anaheim was in on line a right oh yeah could you not see them taking a run at someone like eichel if eichel's available 100 percent, i could i i just wonder about that like if somebody like that is available they could do it they have the prospects there's no denying that i've been thinking about anaheim since the deadline he said a high price. He said a high price. He said a high price. What is he thinking? Mm-hmm. Now, again, don't, well, we can't say radio me. Please don't podcast me, everyone. This is just me wondering. 
Not saying it's going to happen. Like I started the podcast by saying I was making calls last week because I was wondering what was going on. Why isn't this happening with Brindamore? I'm ending the pod by wondering why didn't that happen with Anaheim? And that's one of my theories. Brindamore was fact. This is conjecture. You're not ending the podcast that way. You're going to end the podcast by doing two things here. Oh, okay. What's One, that? what are your thoughts on Ilya Kovalchuk now? Avant-garde Omsk wins the Gagarin Cup, and he's a free agent, and Sergei Tolchinsky, great import story into the OHL there. He wins the, the game-winning goal. But he resigned, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just throw that in there because it's a fascinating story, his import draft story, but... When he terminated his deal, I immediately asked, is there any chance he's coming back this year? And he wasn't on anyone's reserve list. Yeah. So he can't play in the playoffs or anything like that. So I was initially told no. And then, you know, someone said to me, there might be someone who's looking into at least getting his rights. Mm -hmm. So we'll see where it goes. A couple of other things here to close out. Um, one thing you mentioned on headlines, Women's World Hockey Championships are rescheduled August 20th to 31st. Yeah, Ron did a really good interview with Renee Fazell. Absolutely. And I thought that was excellent. And one of the things that I was, one of the things, I mean, I had been whispered about August going back a few months, like, hey, worst case scenario, the WHF is going to do this thing in August. And it's a worst case situation right now. So there it is in August. I wondered about Edmonton and wondered about Red Deer as well as potentials for the obvious reason. And you mentioned Calgary. Well, Calgary's definitely making a big push for it. Mm -hmm. You know, Edmonton's had a lot and good on them. Um, I think Calgary's really making a push for this one. Okay. And one final thing. Okay. First of all, you know how much I love talking about Peter Forsberg. Yes. And you know how much I loved when Peter Forsberg came on this podcast. And I'm yes. pretty sure you guessed by now that I'm a huge Peter Forsberg fan. Yes. When you think of Peter Forsberg's signature move, what do you think of? Not the one that you think of, because I like the reverse hit. That's the one. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the goal, the one that Vrana scored in the no. shootout the other see, day. See, the interesting thing about Forsberg to me is the one thing that to me defines Peter Forsberg isn't the postage stamp goal, mm -hmm. right? And that was actually created by, and Forsberg talked about this on this podcast, Kent Nielsen of the World Championship scoring against John Van Beesbrook. And he did it while he was being chased. It wasn't on a penalty shot or a shootout or anything like that. We saw Jacob Verana do that. That's the touchstone for this conversation on Saturday against Curtis McElroy. Oh, yes! oh my God. With the Forsberg. Varana's done it again. A beautiful goal. Little bicycle kick. And the move Peter Forsberg made face. To me, the Peter Forsberg, the signature move is that what Colby Armstrong always calls it the cold shoulder. The Peter for the, the bump back, right? The reverse hit or whatever is like being able to initiate contact while you have the puck. To me, whenever when anyone says the Forsberg, generally they mean that postage stamp goal that he scored against Corey Hirsch. Yeah. But to me, it's that cold shoulder, isn't it? And I, and I guess it, when you look at, like Forsberg popularized the move that Kent Nielsen essentially created, right? Much like Gordie Howe popularized the Gordie Howe hat trick, which was first done by Harry Cameron in 1917. That'll always be popular. And as we know, Gordie Howe only had himself 
two Gordie Howe hat tricks. Yes, yes, I knew that. But the way he played, it became synonymous with that moment because Gordie was tough, no denying that. Gordie could score, Gordie could set up. Gordy was ambidextrous, right? Like before Yvonne Cornwayer, there was Gordy Howe shooting left and, and shooting right. But I don't know. This is essentially just uh, a way for me, Elliot, to bring up Peter Forsberg again here on this podcast, just because he's one of my favorite players of all time. But So you just rambled on for an extra two minutes and wasted everybody's time because you wanted to talk some more about Peter Forsberg? I think I brought some information. I mentioned Kent Nielsen. I sort of dovetailed it to Harry Cameron in 1917 and gave a little bit of context here. And I've got no problem with talking about Peter Forsberg. None. I could do it all day long. Uh, all right. Uh, and there we go. Listen, thanks uh, to everyone for uh, for tuning into the podcast this week. Uh, once again, another podcast coming up a little bit later on uh, this week, as per usual. Taking us out, uh, a band we featured a couple of seasons ago, BSI, is back with another track from their upcoming double album that's due out at the end of the month. From Reykjavik, Iceland, here's BSI with Vesterbyer Beach. 31 Thoughts, the podcast.